Well, good morning. We continue in our series called Questioning Christianity, where we're asking hard questions of the Christian faith and we're receiving hard answers. It's been a heavy series and the heaviness continues this morning as we ask, what about hell? Many ask, how could I worship a God who sends people to an eternal hell? How is that fair? How is that right? And you've probably all seen those red-faced preachers with their message of turn and turn or burn and may ask, why are they so angry? Are they right? Haven't we moved past all that in the 21st century? Well, no doubt hell is one of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. Charles Darwin called hell a damnable doctrine. Damnation for anyone who believes in damnation, apparently. A few weeks ago, we tackled the, the question is why are Christians arrogant or are Christians arrogant? Why are they exclusive? The idea that Jesus claims that he is the only way of salvation. Well, if there were no hell, that would not be an offensive question. It's really what's back of that question that makes it so hard, that makes it so offensive. In that sermon, we showed that in reality, all people are exclusive in one way or another. And Jesus is the one who said he's the only way to the Father. And that it's only Christ, God become flesh, who's able to provide a necessary sacrifice. And there in that sermon, I briefly mentioned that even within the Christian faith, there are people who try to extinguish hell. There's a view called universalism that says everybody will be saved. In other words, there is no hell. There's a view called inclusivism that says Jesus will save anybody and everybody. Whether or not they know it or not, Jesus is the Savior of all people, regardless of whether or not they have faith. And so there again, no hell. But you just can't get there if you read Scripture. Scripture very clearly teaches that salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. It's not politically correct, but Scripture is very clear. And then in the sermon on why does Christianity have to be so bloody, it really helps us answer this objection as well. We saw there it's because we're sinful more sinful than we ever even thought. And God is holy, extremely holy. He will and must punish all sin to remain true to who he is, which is why the Christian faith is bloody. It's why the Old Testament is filled with blood sacrifice. It's why out of love, God sent his son to pay the penalty for our sin. It's why God sent Jesus to be a propitiation that word is a sacrifice that absorbs the wrath of God on our behalf. And if we understand those truths, it's going to help us understand why divine judgment is a necessity. Scripture reveals that we serve a God of judgments and of love. And we should be able to understand this even on the human level, right? All loving persons are sometimes filled with wrath. Not despite of our love, but because of our love. Right? If you love someone deeply and you see them ruining their lives or the lives of others, it makes you angry. And often people will just dismiss this teaching. No, no, not, not the God I serve. I serve a God of love. Therefore, there can be no hell. But then we've got to ask, what makes you think God is a God of love? Where do you get that idea of God? Do you see it in the world? No. Do you gain that conception of God from studying history? No. Do other religions teach this type of God of love? No. The answer is that we get our conception of a God of love from Scripture, but we can't pick and choose what we want to believe about God from Scripture. 
Again, in the Sermon on Blood, I read off about a dozen passages speaking of the righteous wrath of God. That is really what hell is. It's the wrath of God. It's the place. Hell is the place where the wrath of God is experienced. And again, I mentioned that it's the missing attribute in modern day Christianity. No one wants to talk about it, even though it is in every chapter of God's word. Just to add to a few of the verses we read, let me read a few from, here's one from Psalm chapter 21, verse 8. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces, your bows. God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 18, according to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands, he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the, the wind of the Lord drives. You can't pick and choose. Colossians 3, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because we are sinful and because God is holy, there will be wrath, there will be judgment, there will be hell. And in scripture, hell is eternal. And it's eternal because of <clears throat> the value of the one whom we sin against. It's eternal because of the infinite value of God. The object of the offense determines the severity of the consequence. And again, we even get this on the human level, right? You know, if I spray paint a wall, vandalize, I might get a fine. It's a wall, right? If I run over a cat, 10 points. <laughs> Not really. If I run over a dog, I've got to pull over. I've got to find the owner. I've got to help them bury that dog. If I run over a person, I might go to jail, depending on the circumstances. The object of the offense determines the severity of the consequence, and God is infinitely more valuable than anyone or anything on this earth. So hell is just. It is the only thing we actually deserve. We earn it. We deserve hell because we've sinned against our holy creator. So it's eternal, it is just, Christ will be the judge, King Jesus will judge the living and the dead. When Paul was preaching the gospel uh, to the intellectuals on Mars Hill, here's what he said in Acts chapter 17, he said, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn from their sin. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Christ will be the judge. Scripture describes hell really as God giving us over in our sin to what we want. Three times in Romans chapter 1, we read that God gave them up. 
God will punish people who want to be free from him by giving them what they want. People go to hell because they do not want what heaven requires, namely submission to King Jesus. The elevator music to hell will be Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. The slogan is the same as Burger King, have it your way. C.S. Lewis said, hell is the greatest monument to human freedom and what we do with that freedom. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, there are only two kinds of people. Those who say, thy will be done to God or those to whom God in the end says, thy will be done. All those who are in hell, choose it. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. I believe that the damned are successful rebels until the end. They enjoy the horrible freedom which they have demanded. God gives us over in our sin if that's what we want. And you see, sin never stops. Sin doesn't stop when people die. It continues on for eternity. People are not in hell saying, I'm so sorry, let me out. It continues the trajectory of a self-absorbed life going on and on forever. It's filled with people who for all eternity want to be the center of their universe. Ongoing punishment for ongoing sin going on forever. Hell is less like a chamber locked from the outside than a closet locked from the inside. Through our refusal to repent, our desire to be free from God, free from others. Sometimes people describe hell as being separated from the presence of God. Those in hell will wish they were separate from the presence of God. They will be in the presence of God, but without grace, without love, without mercy. He will be present there, but as the scripture describes, in fury. People often say, you know, I'm, I'm okay with Jesus. I like Jesus and his teaching, but they'll just deny his deity. So he was a wise man. So you have the red letter movement. They like the red letters, what Jesus said. I don't like the others. I don't really like what Peter or Paul say. But we've got to realize that hell is a Jesus thing. Here's again what Lewis said. C.S. Lewis said, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this if it lay in my power, but it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. It's always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. Jesus spoke, spoke more about hell than anyone else in the Bible. And so Christians believe and teach hell because that's what our Lord believed and taught. He spoke of things like unquenchable fire, Eternal punishments, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those are terrible images. Weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who don't turn from their sin and turn to him. Jesus speaks of those who reject him as being cast into outer darkness. Fire. Fire and darkness are really both anti-creation images. Fire disintegrates. Fire destroys. Darkness means isolation. And of course, they're metaphor, metaphors. Can't have darkness and fire. They're metaphors, but heaven and hell are not metaphors. They are reality. 
Let me read just a couple other passages coming from our Lord. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Skipping down to verse 41, he says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46 of Matthew 25, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Or he says something similar in the gospel of Mark chapter nine, verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire and if your foot causes you to sin cut it off it's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell and if your eye causes you to sin tear it out it's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched turn over to Luke chapter 16 Probably the most well-known teaching of Jesus on this difficult doctrine where we have the rich man and Lazarus. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's in the second half on page 61. Luke chapter 16, starting at verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. Notice he doesn't even get a name in this parable. He's identified by what he had. Verse 20, and at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man had died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. 
And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Isn't that an incredible statement? I think that last couple verses is the most incredible statement in this parable. It shows the sufficiency of scripture. Send someone from the dead. And he says, they've got the Bible. If they're not convinced by the Bible, Moses and the prophets, it wouldn't matter if you sent someone who was raised from the dead. But notice here, this rich man who has no name, he still expects the class order and he tries to boss Lazarus around. We got one clothed in purple and fine linen, another clothed in sores. One feasted lavishly, the other begged for crumbs. And notice there's no between. There is no purgatory. This is final. At death, there are no do-overs. There are no mulligans. Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. No more feasting for the rich man. He's just desiring a drop of water. He is in conscious torment. He's not sleeping. He wasn't annihilated without suffering. He is experiencing misery and sorrow. And what are the two things he wants in hell? Number one, he wants mercy. Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And the second thing he wants is evangelism. He begs Abraham to send Lazarus to warn his family. He doesn't want his loved ones to experience this. When I do funerals for those that that died without faith, I'll often say, if they were here, they would plead with you. And that's true regardless. Maybe they did die in faith. Either way, it's true. If they were here and they could tell you, they would say there is nothing more important than trusting Christ Jesus as Lord. Friend, if the thought of a loved one in hell is one of the reasons you don't want to embrace this doctrine, I understand that pain. But your loved one would not have their departure keep you from the love of God. They would have you trust in Christ. And so there's no way around this difficult doctrine. The Bible clearly teaches it. Jesus clearly teaches it. But I want us to think for a minute why hell is actually needed. Why we all, deep down, desire and actually need a God who will judge. Hell can actually become very practical. Abolitionist Frederick Douglass, he asked the question, will not a righteous God visit for these things? And the context in which he asked it is speaking of his grandmother in his biography. And after a lifetime of slavery, of bondage, of servitude, when she became too old to be of use to her masters, her masters callously just sent her away and she died alone apart from her family. And so he asked, will not a righteous God visit for these things? And we all have this feeling at various levels, depending upon the injustices that we have experienced. For those who deny hell, I would ask, will injustice ultimately win out? What about the guy who kidnaps 10-year-old girls and sells them into slavery and prostitution? They're going to be in heaven. We're just going to hold hands and sing Kumbaya together. What about Larry Nasser, who abused and in many ways ruined the lives of over 300 girls? What about Hitler? Will injustice reign? Will not a righteous God visit for these things? And here we've got to recognize our cultural situatedness. 
We have people that have a problem with hell, but we ought to ask, why don't you have a problem with mercy? Why don't you have a problem with forgiveness? We have issues with hell partly because where we're located in our current time with our 21st century Western sensibilities. It's important for us to know that most people in most of the world would not worship a God who did not judge. Divine judgment is needed and can become practical. It keeps us from revenge. Revenge is an extremely popular theme. It may be one of the most dominant themes underlying so many of the movies and books that we love, right? You got Count of Monte Cristo. Whole narrative is revenge. My name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. <laughs> I haven't seen it, but you have the new movie, The Equalizer, too. I think the idea is that Denzel goes around equalizing wrongs, getting revenge. If you ever mess with any of Liam Neeson's family, you just bust out the popcorn. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> it's coming. I like seeing my kids when we watch uh, Lion King and, you know, Scar. You just see the injustice with Scar and they'll often talk trash to him. A scar is so wicked, so evil. There's just this sense of justice. Justice must be served. And so we enjoy seeing the wrong and seeing justice served. But unlike the movies... It never works when we try to do it ourselves. When we try to take it into our own hand. As someone said, when you venture out on a journey of revenge, you best dig two graves. It just doesn't work. And on top of that, the way of Jesus is the opposite of our revenge culture. Flipping your Bible over to Romans chapter 12. If you're in your pew Bible, it's page 127 in the second half. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. The Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Notice what's happening here. He says, we're not to be vengeful. No revenge among the people of God, among believers. Rather, peace. We do not repay evil with evil. When people are evil to us, how can we not repay evil? It's right there in verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Leave it to the wrath of God. When you are wronged, you do not exercise wrath. You leave that to God. And it says in Deuteronomy 32, he quotes, vengeance is the Lord's. He will repay. Look again at verse 17. You do not repay. You repay no one evil for evil. Look down at verse 19. God says, I will repay. You don't repay. You leave it to his wrath. Again, God's wrath is his retributive 
justice. It's the retributive justice of heaven against all sin. We don't exercise wrath. And without divine vengeance, without final judgment, we would be left to ourselves. We would be left with one of two options. A, let injustice reign, or B, take it upon ourselves. Again, neither of which work. And those of you who have been deeply wrong, do you understand this? And again, we're in the West, have it really nice. But again, in most of the world, injustice happens all over the place. And so this matters, which is why so many would not even consider a God who does not judge worthy of worship. I remember hearing a story. This was probably in the early 90s. There was a father and he sent his son off uh, to learn karate. And the karate teacher had abused him and then kidnapped him and taken him. And they found him, and the kid was okay. He had been abused terribly in multiple ways, but he was okay. So they found the teacher, and they convicted him, and he's going to jail. Well, the dad was not satisfied with this man getting three meals a day and sleeping on a mattress. And so what he did was he hid out in the airport and waited till the prisoner was going to be transported. And back then, he could bring a weapon in, and what he did is we took, he took his life himself. Took the life of the inmate, dropped the gun, and turned himself in. For him, he felt justice must be served and him going in a comfortable place with heat and AC would not work. He must take his life. And so he was willing to lose the rest of his own life to take vengeance in his own hands. If he had known God's word and God's judgment, he could let it go and leave it to the wrath of God. I remember myself, the time that I've experienced this most. My parents were divorced when I was young and I was probably 14 or so. And my mom was dating a guy who was abusive. And I come home one time, and he had beat her severely. And her face was almost unrecognizable. And I come home, and, and he comes behind her. And I was 14 years old. What was I to do? But in my heart, I felt vengeance like I've never felt. I wanted to kill him. Now, I wasn't a believer. I had no Christian resources. And you used to know what I was resolved to do? What could I do as a little 14-year-old boy? I threw rocks at his truck and I vandalized his house. That was satisfying for all of two minutes. But now I know that he'll pay for his sin. He'll either trust Christ and Christ will pay for that sin on his behalf, Lord, make it happen, or he will pay for that sin on his head for eternity. Something like that happens to you, what will you do? You cannot take justice into your own hands and you cannot let injustice reign. This is where thankfully we don't have to deal with either of those options. Leave it to the wrath of God. God says, I will repay. Vengeance is mine. Miroslav Volv, he's a Croatian Christian theologian. He had seen terrible, terrible atrocities in the Balkans. Here's what he writes. He says, if God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. The only means of prohibiting all recourse to violence by ourselves is to insist that violence is legitimate only when it comes from God. My thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. 
in a scorched land, again, most of the world today, in a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will, this idea will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. It takes the quiet of a suburban home to dismiss a God who will make things right in the end. He goes on, the certainty of God's judgment at the end of history is the presupposition for the renunciation of violence. In other words, especially when you've been done wronged and especially in context where the blood of the innocent is regularly spilt, belief in divine judgment is required so that we will not pursue violence ourselves. Justice will be served. Colossians 3, 25 says the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. You see, divine justice serves as a restraint, but not only is a restraint, but actually allows us to do the opposite of take revenge, right? That's what we see in Romans 12. We're enabled to love our enemy. Hey, Blinken was right. The best way to destroy an enemy is to make him a friend. We can do that with the Christian resource of divine judgment. We can now seek to do what is honorable rather than take revenge. We can seek to be peaceably with all. We can feed our hungry enemies. The way First Peter puts it about Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What did he do? Continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And he's our example. And Paul says here that by doing so, we heap burning coals on his head. We seek to serve But if they dig in and they continue to respond to kindness with hatred, they guarantee their own judgment. That's what it means to heap burning coals. That's all over the Psalms. Let me just read a couple. Psalm chapter 11, verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Or Psalm 18, the earth reeled and rocked, the foundations also, the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him. Psalm 18, verse 12, out of the brightness before him, hell stones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. So the doctrine of hell can't be avoided. It's taught, but it's also needed for the practice of enemy love. I want to mention to the church here, I want to ask you, how do we respond as believers to this difficult doctrine? I think in one word, with urgency. I think the reality of judgment should make us serious, urgent about our walk and specifically about the mission of God. I remember hearing an interview with uh, the magician's pen and teller. I forget which one is which. I think it's pen that talks. Anyway, he was telling a story. He's an atheist. He's, he, he hates the Christian faith. But he was telling the story about someone who tried to witness to him. Maybe you've seen this. You can find it on YouTube. It's, it's quite compelling. And he was actually commending this little feeble Christian like you and I for attempting to witness to him. And I don't remember the details of how the guy tried to talk with him, but his main point was how much he appreciated the Christian trying to witness to him. 
Because he knew as much as he thinks Christ is, is, is foolish and a fake, he knew that that Christian believed in hell. And so that Christian was actually loving him. And he said, if I believed in what Christians believe, I'd be telling everybody all the time. Because it's the best thing we could do. If I actually believed in hell, he said, I would be telling people all over the place. I would be evangelizing because it is the most loving thing we can do. I wonder, Christian, do you believe in this doctrine? Maybe a better question is, do you live like you believe in hell? Eternity is at stake. Maybe the biggest takeaway for us would be, Lord, help me believe. I believe, help my unbelief, because if I truly believe this, my life would look different, specifically with the mission God has given us. Maybe a good prayer would be, Lord, would you break my heart for the lost? I would love for you to pray that for me. I should be preaching this sermon in tears. Lord, would you break our hearts for the lost? Would we live like we actually believed in eternity without Christ? It would change the way we went about our mission. We would open our mouths about the Lord Jesus Christ regularly. It would change the way we use our time. We would live for eternity. It would change the way we use our resources. We would be emboldened. My prayer for you this morning before I came over here as Lord embolden your people to live for Christ as if hell is real and it should also cause us to praise should make grace great the point of the cross is hell you remove hell there's no point in the cross there's really no point in any of it there on the cross Jesus took hell on our behalf he absorbed the wrath of God that we deserved he bore the punishment that stood on our head Again, oftentimes we talk about salvation, we talk about being saved, but we can miss the main thing. We can miss the main thing in the way we talk, in the way we think, but even the way we witness. We'll talk about, hey, you ought to come to Jesus because in Jesus, you'll have a more fulfilled life. You'll be saved from a joyless life. You'll be saved from unhappiness. You'll be saved of purposeless lives. You'll be saved from low self-esteem. I actually believe that all those things are true and that Jesus does bring about all those things. But we shorten and stop the message and don't give faithfulness to what the scripture says. At the end of the day, the fundamental problem is our sin, which brings about the wrath of God. We need to be saved from the wrath of God. I know it's not popular, but it's true. We need to be saved from hell. If you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I'm glad you're here. And I hope you feel the urgency of this message. And I want to remind you that you can't escape God's judgment. You will face him in, as judge in your sin, but you can escape the judgment of God because of his love for us by sending Jesus on the cross. This discussion about hell is really not about what's practical. It's not really about Nasser or Hitler. It's about you. It's not about family. It's not about friends. It's not about how we feel. It's about reality. It's about what is true. And God has given us two options, his way or our way. Will we say thy will be done or my will be done? The consequences could not be more serious. Let me read from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. 
that we read this, that Jesus will come back with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. And so my question for you is, do you know God? There's no more important question to have answered. Have you obeyed the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ by turning from your sin and turning to him? You can do that right here, right now, where you are. Flee to him. Trust in Christ. Confess your sin. Ask him to save you. If you've got questions about that, I would love to meet with you or just grab a member here at Southside. Maybe someone who invited you. Maybe someone sitting next to you. But don't put it off. Get your questions answered again. There's nothing more important. Next week, we're going to look at the alternative. Heaven. And we'll see that God's ultimate purpose isn't torture, but protection. He will contain and remove the powerful, destructive power of sin in order to protect the flourishing of heaven, the new creation. Come, Lord Jesus.